Leonard Lopate at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Horseshoe crabs are spiny, warrior-like creatures that usually delight children and adults when they discover one on a sandy beach. But currently, they are serving a life-saving purpose because we're relying on their blood, which is worth over $15,000 a quart, to ensure that COVID vaccines and antibody tests aren't contaminated with endotoxins that can ultimately harm us. Unfortunately, horseshoe crabs have been listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. Science journalist William Sargent's book, Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology and Human Health, has just been issued in an updated version by Brandeis University Press, and it brings William Sargent to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. This is fascinating. My friends who grew up on Long Island are quite familiar with them, but for the rest of us, like Brooklyn kid me, what does a horseshoe crab (laughs) look like? Um, basically, it looks like something that like something that Steven Spielberg would have uh, designed for his uh, troopers to to be uh, transported in. It looks a little bit like a, like a helmet or a tank, um, and they scurry along the uh, scurry along the bottom. They have a long tail. Um, do you know Which how you don't want to step on? Have? Right, you don't want to step on that tail. Uh, you don't want to step on that tail. Um, you know, most kids who were brought up uh, on Cape Cod, where I was, or, or in other shore places, you were always uh, heard that those tails could sting you. Hmm. Um, they actually can't sting you. What they use them for is if they get flipped over on their back, say, you know, they get caught in the waves, they're in real trouble because then, um, you know, they can dry out or birds can uh, can feed on them. So what they do is they arch their back and they roll back and forth on that tail and then they're able to flip themselves over. So that's what they've been doing for the past 450 million years with that tail. So they've been around a long time. Where are the largest clusters of horseshoe crabs found? Well, you you get horseshoe crabs from Maine all the way down to the Yucatan. You get the largest and the most in Delaware Bay. Um, so, for instance, where I am up here on, on um, uh, north of Boston, uh, you have the smallest crabs because we have the, the water is colder and you get a lot of fresh water uh, in the estuaries. Um, so a, a crab around here that's 20 years old will be about the size of your hand. The same crab in Delaware that, that would be 20 years old would be about as big as a dinner plate and would weigh about 10 pounds. And they live to 20 at least? Yes, um, and they we know that because they raised them at, at Wellesley College, um, and uh, it was a it was a female horseshoe crab, which was fitting at, at Wellesley College, and uh, and then they kept all the molts. The horseshoe crabs uh, shed their shells every year, um, and uh, so they have twenty years of molt. And the the same thing is true in the wild. Uh, they can live to be about 20 years old. Other than their importance to current medical science, how do they contribute to the ecosystem? Or do they? Well, they're, they're actually, yes, absolutely. They're kind of a keystone species, um, primarily because of their eggs. Once they get to the size of, uh, say, a 50-cent piece, uh, nobody will bother them very much. But while they're eggs and while they're part of the plankton, they're like little floating ice cream cones. Everybody likes to eat them. Um, So there are a number of of endangered species of shorebirds 
that are dependent on horseshoe crabs, the, the main one being red knots. And these are birds that migrate from Tierra del Fuego and the, at the tip of South America all the way up to the Arctic Circle. And they time their migration so that they're on the Delaware beaches for the two weeks when the horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs. They lay their eggs under the full moon and new moon of, of April, May, June, and July. So they'll all be there uh, for about two weeks in May. They eat 40 tons of horseshoe crab eggs, and then that gives them the energy and the fuel to make the next leg of their, of their migration up to the Arctic, Arctic Circle. And of course, that adds to making the horseshoe crabs an endangered species. Um, when did scientists first become aware that their blood contained something of value to medical science? It was uh, actually back in the uh, back in the fifties, um, and there was a uh, there was a scientist called uh, Frederick Bang, hmm. and um, he was uh, he had a horseshoe crab in his laboratory at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, uh, and he noticed all of a sudden that it sludged up and died, and you know. Most people would uh, just, you know, throw the crab out and get another and continue with their experiment. But he realized that something was interesting going on. And he discovered that there were a lot of uh, what are called gram negative bacteria in the in the water um, and that that gram negative bacteria had gotten uh, into the uh, into the horseshoe crab uh, and killed it. Um, and so he eventually found that that horseshoe crabs actually have the oldest immune system in the in the uh, in the animal kingdom. Uh, so they and trilobites uh, have a very primitive system. Our immune system, we have about 26 individual kinds of cells. We have T cells and killer cells. And these areas will go to an area that's being infected and will fight the infection. What horseshoe crabs have are a single kind of what's called an amoebocyte cell, and these amoebocytes migrate to the area and coagulate, so they keep the infection out. So it's a very, very primitive system, but it's, it's worked for 450 million years. Um, and uh, actually, the, the story behind that is uh, if you look, if you flip over a horseshoe crab, Sometimes you'll see little flight, uh, little white flatworms crawling around their legs. And these are called Delura candida. And what they do is they lay their eggs in the, uh, the book gills of the horseshoe crabs. Horseshoe crabs are their closest relatives are, are spiders. Uh, and they have book gills similar to a spider. So what they do is they lay their eggs in the book gills. And then when those eggs hatch, they tear the tissue of the, of the gills uh, and that allows the fresh the, the, the water that contains uh, the gram negative bacteria to get in and um, and that and that would kill them if they didn't have if they hadn't evolved this immune system uh, that, that protects them. And now we are using that same immune system to protect ourselves because anything that's going to come in in contact with the human blood system, whether it's a syringe, or a vaccine or an antibody test, all have to be tested to make sure they're free of these gram-negative bacteria. They're often called pyrogens in a, in a hospital setting. Pyrogens the meaning way we burning that, bodies? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And why this why is are they what called burning bodies? Um, because this is what gives us a fever. 
um, you know, when you go into toxic shock syndrome or, or uh, uh, when you go into shock, uh, it's because the bacteria are getting from your, say, you, say you're in an accident and the bacteria goes from your intestines and it gets into your blood system. Then you go into, into toxic shock. Uh, and of course, that can be that can be fatal. Um, and uh, so anything that's going to come in contact with the human blood system has to be, you know, tested to make sure that it's free of these pyrogens. You said that in 1956, Dr. Frederick Bang of Woods Hole noticed uh, that uh, if you inject bacteria into a horseshoe crab, it sludges up and died. Um, and didn't his finding lead him to collaborate with Dr. Jack Levin, uh, his colleague at, at Woods Hole? Uh, Dr. That, Levin was doing similar work, but, right. but with rabbits, right? Well, what in, in the early days, um, the way you would test uh, vaccines is you would have to inject them into, a, into live rabbits. And if the rabbit kicked over and died, then you knew it was contaminated. So all the pharmaceutical companies had huge colonies of, of live rabbits. So they might have, you know, six or seven hundred live rabbits that they had to take care of. And they had to do this individual test, which was time consuming and, and expensive and, and, you know, fairly difficult to do. Um, but uh, then they discovered that the, that the horseshoe crab test is, was cheaper and easier and much more sensitive uh, than, the, than the rabbit test. And so that became the standard test. Uh, and it came about because in 1976, we had what was called what was expected to be the swine flu epidemic. Uh, it turned out only a couple uh, recruits in Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey, came down with the flu. But um, then Governor, then President uh, Ford wanted to show that he could do something other than pardon President Nixon. <laughs> so he set about a program to inoculate every man, woman and child uh, against swine flu. And it was a it was a very public program. There were all sorts of celebrities uh, that, that you know, made a point of, of getting their shots. And what happened is that nobody got swine flu um, because it never it, it never spread. It, it, it never seemed to be there. But hundreds of people got neurological uh, damage from the from the vaccines because the vaccines uh, were contaminated with with gram negative bacteria. Ooh. And that's when they discovered that the that the horseshoe crab blood was more effective than the than the rabbit test. Now, is it the blood only from female horseshoe crabs? Uh, well, it, it, you could take the, the blood works from either males or females. It's just that the, the females are larger than the males. The males stop growing after, um, after about 10 years, uh, and the females keep growing. So they get about a fourth larger every year. Um, uh, and it's simply, uh, you know, it, it makes more sense to, and it's faster to bleed the, the large females than it is to bleed the, the males. Do the crabs die when the blood is extracted? No, theoretically, you should have no mortality. Uh, so theoretically, you should be able to go out and capture the crabs in the wild, bring them to the laboratory, bleed them, and then return them to the wild with no mortality. 
under industrial conditions, uh, sometimes the trucks won't show up, the crabs will be left out in the sun, or the burlap bags that are covering the, the crabs will, will come off. Uh, and then you'll get, you can get up to 50% mortality. Um, so the companies now are, are admitting to about 15% mortality on average, uh, which I think probably means they're, they're getting about 30% mortality on average. And so then you can have these spikes when, when something goes wrong. So they can go back and take more blood in a, in a, in a few years or so? Well, what you um, what they do, um, for instance, uh, well, I've been studying them now for the past about 40 years in uh, a, a little estuary called Pleasant Bay on Cape Cod. And they've been capturing them for the lysate industry uh, throughout the past 40 years. And what they do is they they catch them uh, in the shallower waters. And then they, they bring them to the lab and they're bled, and then they return them to the deep waters of the bay. And it takes them about 30 days to get from the deep water back to the shallow water. Uh, and it also takes about 30 days for them to recover their blood. Um, so, uh, you know, what you really want to do is only bleed them once, uh, you know, once a summer, uh, once a year. Um, and this, this pretty much ensures that you might you might bleed, you know bleed them once or twice um, but in an area like Pleasant Bay uh, about 90 percent of the horseshoe crabs uh, are, you know are being bled and um, I was just down there two weeks ago looking at some of the crabs and pretty much every crab that you pick up will have a fungal infection on the little hinge that they have where they where they puncture the the hinge to uh, to withdraw the blood, uh, and they get this fungal uh, infection there, um, and so um, uh, you know, so that's a problem. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is William Sargent. We're talking about the updated version of his book, Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology, and Human Health, which is published by Brandeis University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You've called this um, arguably the most important discovery ever to come out of the field of marine biology. But didn't uh, doctors Bang and Levin... Uh, not apply for patent for their work? Why didn't they? Uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, there was a little bit of uh, sort of uh, internecine chicanery going on between the uh, scientists at the Marine Biological Laboratory and at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, and um, in those days, you know, institutions like the MBL uh didn't want to have anything to do with commercialization. Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember they, they got in trouble uh, earlier on because they were um, producing this lysate uh, and then they were selling it to other researchers. Uh, and um, all the, the, the comptroller, you know, brought the brought the scientists in and, the, and they said, you know, you can't keep doing this. We're, we're, um, we're making too much money. We're, we're a nonprofit organization. Um, uh, so they, so they stopped doing that. But what happened is, um, there was a scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution 
that started making the Lysate himself and marketing it. And, um, and he decided to, to set up a company uh, that would produce the Lysate. And actually, the, the sad story of my life is that um, uh, he was bleeding the horseshoe crabs in his basement and he wanted to set up this company. Uh, and he asked me if I'd like to become a partner and to become a partner, he wanted me to, you know, uh, you know, find five thousand dollars so we could buy equipment. I had no idea how you could raise five thousand dollars. And I thought it was a flaky idea anyway. So I turned him down. This is Dr. Uh, Stanley about, Walt Watson that you're talking about. This was Dr. Watson. Yeah. Yes. And uh, about 30 years ago, uh, he sold that that uh, company to a Japanese firm for thirty two million dollars. So uh, I missed out on that one. Now, what would have happened if a if a patent had been obtained? How would that have changed things? Well, they would have protected they would have protected themselves, uh, and uh, and then they could have either sold the you know licensed uh, the procedure, uh, or you know even given it to the the marine biological laboratory. Um, and that would end up, you know, funding a lot of research. Um, but they, but they sort of missed the boat on that. And uh, Stan was able to to pick it up. And uh, and again, what most scientists would would do is they would license it or or um, you know somehow protect themselves, but not do it, you know, not set up a company. Uh, this was in the old days. Now, of course, um, you know, a lot of young scientists that are in, in working with gene splicing uh, will set up their companies and they can get, you know, a, a huge amount of, of venture capital um, to, to go into business. I think um, what's interesting about the horseshoe crab story is it's kind of a cautionary tale. Um, because there was a lot of people were cutting corners and doing things that they shouldn't do. Um, and this was even hidden by the scientists in the company. So, for instance, um, I interviewed the, the uh, chief scientist of uh, what was called Associates of Cape Cod. That was the company that was sold to Sega Kaku, uh, which is the Japanese firm. Uh, but he was the chief scientist, and he always assumed that they were doing the right thing with the horseshoe crabs, and they were collecting them the correct way, and they were returning them. Um, but one day, their driver didn't show up for work, so he and another guy said, well, you know, let's grab the truck, and we'll return the crabs. And so they, you know, they drove to the, uh, to the collecting area, and there was a whole lineup of, uh, of fishermen's trucks uh, and they got out and they said, well, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, we're waiting for the crabs. And it turned out what the company was doing is they were, uh, you know, buying the crabs, using them for lysate and then turning around and selling them back to the uh, to the fishermen for, to use for bait. Um, so they were they were sort of getting getting paid twice. Uh, but what you were doing is you were going from having 100% sustainable fisheries uh, to 100% uh, mortality in the fisheries. But wasn't uh, there a lot of resistance in the com medical community at first? Um, are they slow to alternative ways of thinking? Um, well, I, I think the... 
you know, right after the swine flu epidemic, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, you know, approved the uh, the horseshoe crab test. And that was picked up really pretty, pretty quickly um, because it, it was uh, more sensitive and easier to use and cheaper and everything like that. What's happening now is that uh, a, um, a scientist in Singapore uh, has used gene splicing to come up with a method that you can make this lysate uh, without using uh, without using a lot of live crabs. So this would protect the crabs. Uh, but the Food and Drug Administration. Well, that's, Dr. Ling, um, that's Dr. Ling Jake Ding. That's right. That's right. National University of um, Singapore. Exactly. Yeah. And. Um, uh, and the but, but the food food and drug administration um, hasn't approved that uh, because they have about thirty years of experience with the natural lysate, um, and we know that it's that it's a safe and effective and easy to use and inexpensive and more sensitive uh, than the artificial one. But we only have about two years of trials with the with the artificial one. And they didn't want to, to switch horses in midstream in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so I, I'm, I I seldom agree with the Food and Drug Administration, but uh, on this one, I think they they made the right decision. And eventually, um, I think they will accept the the uh, artificial form of lysate, uh, and then that will end the lysate industry, and it will also end the fisheries uh, for horseshoe crabs. And then the horseshoe crabs will have another million years or so to to recover. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if we can say the same thing about ourselves. You keep on using the word lysate. What is ly- luminous lysate? Yes. Um, what it's the technical term is limulus amoebocyte lysate. So limulus comes from the Latin name for horseshoe crabs, which is limulus polyphi- polyphemus. Lysate comes from uh, amoebocyte uh, comes from from the amoebocyte cells. Lysate comes from the process where you lyse the cells, and this essentially it means if you put the cells in fresh water, they will break open um, and uh, they will lyse, and um, uh, and then you take that lysate, um, the material from uh, you know from inside the cells to make what's called limulus amoebocyte lysate, or LAL for short. Uh, I like to call it lysate because I think uh, people can remember that better. And you've talked about the lysate test. What is the lysate test? Uh, Well, basically what they do is they take that brilliant blue, cobalt blue blood, uh, they, uh, they spin it down, and they lyse it, uh, and then they dry it out so you have a, a white powder. Uh, and then you can, you know, rehydrogenate that, that, um, uh, that lysate uh, again to make a liquid. And then that's what you use to, to test your vaccines or vials or, or whatever it is that you're, that you're testing. And basically the, the test is, uh, is the similar thing. If it, if it turns bright blue, then you know that uh, that the sample is contaminated. So it's actually a very simple uh, test. 
So every FDA-certified drug, scalpel, and syringe must be tested with limulus lysate? Absolutely. And it's not, it's not that the, you have to test every single dose of the vaccine. What they do is they, they will test every batch of vaccines. So you might have hundreds of doses or even thousands of, of doses uh, per batch. Uh, and but each batch has to be uh, has to be tested. And of course, um, you know, this is the demand since covid. Uh, the demand has has shot through the roof because all the, the antibody tests and all the vaccines and all the vials and the syringes all have to be tested. Um, so what's happening is, um, you know, the demand for horseshoe crabs has gone up. And one of the things that we were seeing uh, down on, on Cape Cod in this bay that we've been studying the horseshoe crabs in for the last 40 years uh, is, is there was a drastic decline, but people didn't, people didn't notice that because the bay is full of lots of you know, large uh, adult crabs. But what they didn't see is that there are no more immature crabs. Um, so what we did, and we've done this you know, for the past um, 10 or 20 years, is we walk around along a, a hundred, hundred meter transect and we count the number of, of horseshoe crab shells. And these, these one-year-old shells are about the size of your, of your thumbnail. Um, and uh, in a normal year, you get about two or 300 crabs. Uh, just two weeks ago, we only saw two shells, only two months. Wow. Um, so that, and, and I, so I think what's happening is, is the collectors are collecting, uh, right up on the beaches or in the shallow waters. Uh, and this is, um, this is actually on Pleasant Bay. Um, this is illegal, um, because they're collecting the crabs within the waters of the Cape Cod National Seashore. And you're not uh, you're not allowed to make a profit from from uh, animals from a from a national park or a national seashore. Um, there was a federal uh, court case in the year 2000 uh, um, that that you know that that reaffirmed um, that the seashore was able to ban this practice. And at the time, I think the uh, the director of the seashore said, "Well, you know, what are we going to do? Chase them with our pursuit canoes?" <laughs> um, but um, um, but that was that was resolved. The other thing that's going on, uh, and I think this is the this is the way to go. Um, the state of, of uh, South Carolina and several other areas uh, have said that you can only use horseshoe crabs uh, for biomedical purposes um, because they're also being used for bait. Um, so particularly in the mid-Atlantic states. They're used as bait for scungili, uh, for, for conch, and for, uh, and for eels. And um, so they'll, they'll chop up a horseshoe crab and, and use it for bait. If you keep the crabs alive and use them for lysate, each crab is worth about $1,500. If you chop them up and use them for bait, they're worth about 30 cents a pound. Um, but that's, that's, what, uh, that's what they were doing. And gradually, that is, that is being banned. And actually, um, I remember I used to talk about this on various radio shows, and I thought I'd get a lot of pushback from the fishermen because it was, uh, you know, yet another regulation that they had to deal with. 
Um, but in fact, they all said, you know, it's really not a problem. There are other species like spider crabs that we can use that work that work just as well for bait. Um, so there, there was a there was no problem from from that that sector. Well, the decline is rather shocking. In 1991, Delaware Bay's beaches recorded 100,000 eggs over every square yard. In 2000, there were fewer than 6,000 eggs per square yard. That's a major decline. That's right. And, and, and I'm assuming and course, it's even lower um, now. Sorry? And I'm, I'm assuming that there are even fewer now. Yes, yes. And, and, um, and of course, where, where people really started seeing the effects of that uh, is that, that species, the shorebirds like the red knots, uh, would get up to, um, you know, to their breeding grounds up above the Arctic Circle, uh, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have enough fat to be able to start laying eggs. Uh, so the numbers of, uh, of, of these birds were declining. And, and actually, it, it's been the birders who have sort of led the charge. Uh, and they are, they are the people that are trying to convince the industry to accept this, um, uh, the artificial uh, form of, of lysate, which would, uh, which would protect both the horseshoe crabs, their eggs, and the, and the birds that are dependent upon them. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. back with William Sargent, whose book, Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology and Human Health, has been issued in an updated version recently by Brandeis University Press. He's a consultant for the Nova Science Series and the author of many books about science and the environment and formerly the director of the Baltimore Aquarium and a research assistant at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He's taught at the Briarwood Center for Marine Biology at Harvard University. How much of uh, the story has changed since the first edition of your book was published in 2002? Well, of course, the, the big change has been COVID. Um, so all of a sudden, the, the, the demand for horseshoe crabs and the, and the demand for lysate has shot up. Uh, that plus the fact that now we have this new way uh, of, of producing the artificial form of lysate. So we're, we're kind of right at an inflection point um, where things, uh, things are changing rapidly and could change some more. Uh, if and when the FDA accepts this this new method, I do have to ask you, uh, what was that song? That was wonderful, and who was singing it? I wish I were a horseshoe crab. I I wish I knew. My uh, executive producer Jesse Lent came up with it. It's in the middle of a, of a track, but uh, you know it isn't so easy to find songs about horseshoe crabs. So we were very lucky never... to find that. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm, I'm very impressed. I'm, I'm going to track that one down. <laughs> now, I may, did I get it wrong when I said the cost of a horseshoe crab of horseshoe crab blood is $15,000 a quart? Is it $1,500 a quart? 
It's actually 1,500. Oh, um, I don't and, know where I saw yeah, the 15,000. Yeah. Um, how many tests can be done with a quart of blood? Uh, you can get about, uh, let's see, you can get about 200 tests. Hmm. So that's rather expensive. Yeah. It's a lot of money per test. Yeah, it's about, well, in the old days, it was $50 a test, and probably it's closer to $100 now. Um, but as you say, lysate testing has been helpful in developing vaccines for, for COVID-19. How does that work? And is it all the vaccines uh, that we have seen so far, the uh, Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson, and the ones yes, that are that uh, are being developed in, in other parts of the world, Russia and China? Uh, yes, yes, they all they all have to be uh, they all have to be tested. And you know a- any uh, anything, but they have to be tested before they go into a human arm. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, but they, but they do, they pretty much do the testing, um, anyway. Um, but it's, it's, they're not, it's not going to do harm until they go, you know, until they, if they're contaminated and they go into your arm. So that, that's why the testing is done. Now, I, my executive producer has given me the name of the song. It's called Horseshoe Crab, and it's performed by Slothrust, S-L-O-T-H-R-U-S-T. In case you want to look it up, you'll probably find it on YouTube or one of the other uh, music sources. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm sure you, you're going to want to know about it for the next presentation you do. Let's get back to what Absolutely. happened in 2003 when Dr. Ling Jake Ding from the National University of Singapore discovered a way to replicate factor C in horseshoe crab blood, the fact that it allows for detection of endotoxins. What's the science behind her discovery? Uh, well, she... Um but they 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 even have a, a more severe problem in Asia because they they have four species of horseshoe crabs there and they're all in decline. Uh, so she. But do they all have the same for a, factor in their blood? Uh, they they do. Um, you know, a lot of the companies will you know say that the East Coast horseshoe crabs are better than the Asian horseshoe crabs, and I think that's a certain amount of just sort of. Uh, uh, you know, advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been doing it with, we have a single species of Limulus polyphemus, and they have four other species. You usually find horseshoe crabs on the west western side of, of oceans. Uh, so we get them up and down the east coast because of the Gulf Stream, and the Gulf Stream spreads out that temperate waters from, from Maine all the way down to Florida. The same thing is true uh, in Asia, where you get the Japanese current that spreads that warm water, uh, you know, from northern Asia to to uh, southern Asia. Um, uh, so she she wanted to uh, she wanted to protect the horseshoe crabs, and she found out about factor C, which is one factor in their immune system, and this is the this is uh, the factor that fights uh, fungal uh, infections. Uh, so this is another reason why it isn't as effective as the as the the whole animal test, the natural lysate, um, because you have this cascade uh, of uh, you know uh, in the immune system, you have this cascade 
that, uh, that fights all of the infection whereas uh, the factor C only, uh, only is, a single, is a single factor, which is another reason that the, that the natural lysate uh, is more sensitive um, than, the, than the artificial one. She licensed her formula and sold it to Lonza, a Swiss company. Can any, are there any controls or any international controls over how this very important thing is being handled? Very few. Um, uh, Lanza is uh, associated, um, I believe it's with Pfizer. Um, and uh, so what they were, they were very smart because they, they bought the license so that they could have their own supply of, of lysate. Uh, so they would have their own independent supply to test, uh, to test their vaccines. Uh, the other companies would have to go out and, uh, and buy it. Uh, independently. Um, so they, they were sort of, you know, uh, protecting their whole supply chain. Now, uh, aren't companies trying to manufacture an alternative synthetic test known as RFC, recombinant factor C now? Yes. And that's, that's the recombinant uh, factor C that we were talking mm. about. So that, that's, that's the same how's thing. That, how's that made? Uh, they're not using the crabs, right? No, what they do um, is, uh, you know, they they use gene splicing essentially um, to, uh, you know, pr to produce the the artificial form. And how? Uh, what's the effectiveness of of animal lysate versus synthetic lysate? How do they compare? Well, again, we, we have a lot more data on the the natural uh, lysate. Uh, and, you know, and, and the people that use it um, will tell you that it's a lot more sensitive, it's easier to use, and, uh, and it's less expensive. Um, uh, so I think, I think, you know, that's, those are the advantages. Less expensive at $1,500 a quart? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, but despite the fact that uh, synthetic lysate has been developed and is being used, horseshoe crabs' uh, populations are still declining. Uh, is it simply because uh, of this medical thing, or is just other uh, well, factors, global warming and other things, also factors? Well, um uh, of course, a big factor was, uh, you know, and still is their use for bait. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you get 100 percent mortality. Um, uh, that is, you know, has gradually uh, been declining. We have have some regulations. We have a, a whole area um, off of Delaware Bay called the Carl Schuster uh, Biomedical Reserve, I believe. Um, where you're you're not allowed to catch horseshoe crabs uh, for bait in that in that area, um, so that that has had that has had a help. Um, now, didn't Native Americans use horseshoe crabs to fertilize their fields, uh, with colonial farmers following their example? What what part of the crab did they use? They used everything, um, and they just uh, crushed them up and planted them around their corn. And actually, uh, in the 1920s, I believe it was, um, 
in Delaware Bay, uh, you, you had a, a huge fertilizer industry. Uh, so they were using the horseshoe crabs both for fertilizer, uh, but also for chicken feed. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, the chickens would have this sort of fishy taste to them uh, when you when you uh, gave them horseshoe crab feed. Um, and uh, you, you would like to think that they stopped that practice, um, you know, for conservation reasons. I think they stopped the practice because the stink was so terrible around those, you know, millions and millions of dead horseshoe crabs. Uh, and when you think that, you know, each one of those horseshoe crabs is now worth about $1,500, there were, you know, millions of dollars worth of horseshoe crabs that were, that were crushed up uh, to make uh, bird food and, and fertilizer. You've written, I'm quoting you, the Delaware and Pleasant Bay Reserves will protect major crab breeding stocks. They may be joined by sanctuaries off Monomoy and uh, Chincoteague once sufficient research is done. And what will happen with those remaining stocks? About a tenth of the horseshoe crabs could be removed from the wild, bled, and returned offshore each, each, every year. It'll be the same kind of um, ocean ranching that's gone uh, on in Pleasant Bay for almost 30 years. So what do you think of, of those productions? Are they enough? Protections, are they enough? Um, well, I think, you know, I think the big change will come when they, uh, when the artificial uh, lysate is, is accepted. Uh, but now, no, I don't think they are enough, um, you know, because we're seeing this decline uh, up and down the East Coast. And I think the I think the companies and the collectors are just sort of making a, uh, a gamble. Um, they figure that the, that the industry may be over uh, in a year or two and the covid crisis may be over in a, in a year or two. Um, so I think they feel that they can deplete the resource uh, and um, and they're just kind of not worrying about the future. I think they, they, they need to meet demand and they need to, you know, keep in business and make a, and make a buck um, while they can. But once the COVID crisis is over, we'll still be uh, wanting to, uh, to test uh, things for bacteria, won't we? Absolutely. Um, and that and then that's when I think um, the the artificial form will come in, the recombinant uh, factor C. Um, and then that will that will replace the, the natural lysate. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, I'm Leonard Lopate. My guest is William Sargent, who's book the the book we're discussing is crab wars a tale of horseshoe crabs ecology and human health published by brandeis university you recently published another book called terror by error the covid chronicles which um proposes a rather controversial theme a, th a theory doesn't it uh yes it was it was actually turns out that it was the first book that looked at the idea that um that the covid came about because of a, because of a lab accident uh and of course when i said the cd hasn't the fbi said that's not true even in a re, in a recent report uh no i think i think the well what happened is you know when it first came out um 
I, I think everybody thought I had gone to the dark side and nobody wanted wanted to talk about it. And, you know, now um, everybody's talking about it um, because the two main theories are A, that COVID came from nature. In other words, it came from from uh, the virus was in bats uh, and then it came through uh, an amplifier organism um, and then eventually came into humans or that it came about because of a lab accident. Um, and we, do, I don't think we're ever going to get proof one way or another uh, between the two. But I think there are real holes in the natural scenario because we have, we've never found horseshoe crabs. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> we've we've never bats. found COVID <laughs> yeah, in, in, um, uh, in what's called an amplifier organism. So when you have a flu, uh, when you have a swine flu or an avian flu, uh, it's named for the amplifier organism. So it's come from something else like a bat, and then it's gone through, uh, you, you know, a chicken or a, um, uh, or a, or a pig. Um, and so that's what the, that's what the, name, uh, the name comes from. Um, what we have been doing, we were, initially we were doing it in this country, uh, research that's called gain-of-function research, and what you do with gain-of-function research is you, um, you take the COVID virus or whatever virus you're studying and you inject it into a ferret, which is a, was a weasel-like animal. Um, and then the, the virus mutates. You take it out of that ferret and you inject it into another ferret and it mutates some more. And then you take it out and you put it in another and after you've gone through so many ferrets, the virus can jump from ferret to ferret, which means it can jump from human to human. So it's gained that, that transmissibility. It's gained the function of, of being contagious, essentially. Um, and so I think what happened is, uh, you know, the, 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 a technician in Wuhan did this successfully. Um, but um, he was probably tired at the end of the day and and the, the ferret wiggled and perhaps it sneezed. Uh, perhaps he jabbed himself in the finger um, and uh, the technician, um, you know, picked up the uh, picked up the virus. And then he would have been patient zero that was transferred to the Union Hospital, which is right beside the uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's where the first 44 uh, patients uh, in the hospital, both the patients uh, and the doctors, were first infected. Um, so I, I find that, frankly, much more plausible um, than the um, than the than the nat the idea that it came from nature. The other big thing, of course, is that you know here you have a disease that you know its native population in comes from bats in caves a thousand miles away so it seems a little suspicious that all of a sudden that same disease that you don't find anywhere else appears right outside the the, the laboratory the only uh what's called a level four biocontainment facility in all of china uh, where they where they were studying the bats and they were holding the bats and they were working with the viruses in that laboratory. It seems very suspicious to me uh, that uh, all of a sudden um, they found the, the people were infected right outside the laboratory. 
So I think it 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 uh, it makes there's a there's a lot more circumstantial evidence uh, that points towards the fact that there was some kind of kind some kind of accident. And we found we used to do this same sort of um, uh, gain of function research uh, in the United States, but w- we found it so dangerous and so risky uh, that a lot of scientists um, said, no, we should ban this. And so, in fact, we did ban it. Uh, but what we did is we continued to, uh, to fund it uh, in China. And so essentially what we were doing is we were outsourcing this, this research because we felt it was so dangerous, uh, too dangerous to do in, in this country. Now, these mutations, uh, have, they, they're leading to variants. And we, uh, after Delta, there's a good chance we will have Epsilon and Lambda. Is this going to go on forever? Well, um, it's certainly going to keep mutating. Uh, what we don't know is whether it's going to keep mutating and become more contagious and more and more virulent, or uh, whether it's going to become less contagious and, and less virulent. It's, uh, at some point, if it becomes you know, so contagious and so powerful uh, that it's killing all, off all of its hosts, um, it's not. It, it's going to die out itself because it won't have it won't have any more hosts. So, the, a more efficient parasite is one that um, that that doesn't have this uh, transmissibility transmissibility uh, and and isn't as as virulent, so that it can so that it keeps um, you know maintaining itself because it always has another host to it to infect and. Uh, and that also means that the disease uh, will become or can become um, uh, less deadly um, because it's not in the parasite's interest to kill its host because then it's going to kill itself. Uh, but if it can make the, the, the host sick uh, and just sick enough so that it transfers uh, the viruses to other people, then it will continue. Do you see that book as a kind of uh, reflection on the unintended consequences of scientific progress? Uh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, in a way, these two books are, are connected because, um, you know, I saw some of the uh, some of the mistakes that were made. I I uh, did a lot of former research uh, in in oceanography, not a lot, but I, I was on a on an oceanographic cruise to Africa and South America and up into the Baltic. And, um, and you know, it was very common uh, to, to make mistakes. Uh, I, I remember uh, one night it was four in the morning and I had been on watch for the last four hours. And what I had to do is I had a big screen in front of me and I had to keep uh, I had to keep the line of the bottom of the Atlantic uh, on the screen, and I had various knobs to do this, and uh, I, and I nodded off for a second, and all of a sudden I woke up with a start, and I had lost the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> we, we, well, it's still we there. Come to the, well, yes, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> we had come to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and of course, all of a sudden. You know, it. You know, you have hundreds of miles where it's absolutely flat, and then all of a sudden it rises up very quickly. 
uh, and I missed it. So I had to, you know, struggle around and I finally found it again. Uh, and of course, everybody, you know, I was the youngest member of the science team. So I took a lot of ribbing the next uh, the next day at, at, at breakfast. Um, but you'd get all kinds of, of, of problems like that. And if you ask any scientist, you know, in an over a beer conversation, um, you know, if you ask them if they've ever had any any accidents in their lab or if they've ever made any mistakes and they'll they'll roll their eyes and say, you know, of course, um, you know, you, you mistake, you make mistakes all the time. Sometimes you make uh, a serendipitous mistake like the one um, that, that Frederick Bang made uh, when the horsecraft died. Yeah, we've, we've yeah run, exactly. And we've, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but uh, it's been uh, a fascinating. Uh, I found the book fascinating and the topic fascinating. And my great thanks to you for sharing it with us, William Sargent. His book, Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Ecology and Human Health, has just been issued in an updated version because of uh, COVID and other factors by Brandeis University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much, and thank, thank you for telling me about the Horseshoe Crab uh, song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Remember, it's Horseshoe Crab by Sloth Rust. Uh, and, that, and that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. And if you'd like to hear more of our one-hour investigations into one subject, you can access past show streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI so that this show can continue coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and, and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, we need you to step up right now. Again, go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-supported on the air by making a tax-deductible donation. Uh, as I'm sure you can understand, we need your help now more than ever after all the difficulties we've experienced over the, the past year. And my great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and I hope you can join us again tomorrow when award-winning novelist Alice McDermott will discuss her new book, What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction. We'll see you then.